Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today the author of the book titled Landscape Design and Revolution in Ireland and the United States, 1688 to 1815, published by Yale University Press in 2023. I have with me Dr. Fanola O'Kane, who explores in this book how revolutionary ideas were translated into landscape design on both sides of the Atlantic, encompassing all sorts of really fascinating big picture topics like liberty, equality, improvement, and colonialism. So Fanola, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to tell us all about it. And thank you very much for having me, um, Miranda. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Likewise, before we dive into your book, though, would you mind introducing yourself a bit to our audience and explaining why you decided to write the book? Um, Yes, I'd like to. Um, uh, my name is Fanola O'Kane. Um, I'm a professor in the School of Architecture, Planning and Environmental Policy in University College Dublin. Um, and I've come at landscape. Um, I'm an architect originally. Um, and then I did a lot of work in kind of um, uh, the history of landscape, specifically the history of 18th century landscape gardens. Um, I work also in conservation Um, And I work closely, frequently with English literature colleagues because so much garden history in particular was written by English literature academics in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. That's where I started. But I think as an architect, I liked looking at the window more than being inside. Um, So it seems a logical pattern to have ended up in outside, I suppose. Um, And then just in terms of the 18th century in Ireland, um, it is, uh, uh, I suppose, for most of Europe, it's a, a, a century of great change. Um, it's also been in Ireland, I suppose, a golden age in that the Georgian architecture, all of that period predates the famine. The 19th century in Ireland is a very miserable century, really. Um, so we have this 18th century flowering. We have this this great 18th century culture that develops. Um, but again, in Ireland, it's always um, there's always two sides to the sword, I suppose, or there's, there's, it's a double-bladed sword in that, that beauty is always accompanied frequently by tragedy, and it is also frequently a colonial context. Um, so Ireland, in that way, can talk, I think, across, can engage more across the Atlantic by being caught kind of between the old world and the new, and patterns of kind of development and colonialism that were experienced here um, echo what happened in the States and in the Caribbean and in other parts of the world. Um, so Ireland is sometimes not in Europe in a strange way. Hmm. Very helpful context. Thank you very much for starting us off with that. Before we get on to what's built on top of the land, I think we should probably start with the land itself. So can you tell us about what role you think revolution plays in the changing definition of land and how you sort of thought about that when considering the time period that this book would cover? 
Well, I think it stems back to my early training in a way in drawing and in um, architecture in that, you know, the lines on a drawing or the lines on a map are frequently those of property. They're, they're always the most significant, certainly in terms of development. So land in most countries is drawn and understood, particularly in terms of who owns it um, and so that that's quite separate in a way from the, how landscape or land would would behave on its own because we introduce these walls and boundaries and lines on a map um and so that that i think is an important way in which i look at land um and then how it t- turns into landscape is really the projection upwards of those lands and then the kind of intersection of the the ground plane really with how landscape is represented um, in images. Um, so property is a device or a, a, a kind of human concept of ownership that stems, of course, partly from family and from legacy and from inheritance um, that we imprint on the land. And then the, the changes that follow, I think, are very interesting. Mm, very much so. Um, Continuing this idea of sort of first things first in terms of where we get to with an estate and a house, maybe as an, an idea of an end point, um, the land and these property lines, right? One thing you talk a lot about in the book is kind of the practicality of creating these. And one of them is different methods of surveying, which, to be honest, I hadn't thought that much about and actually found fascinating reading your book. So can you tell us about the compass and chain method of surveying and why it was used so much in Ireland um, and the places that became the United States and sort of why we care about, you know, why does it matter that this was the method of surveying used in these places? Um, well, it took a compass and chain survey is, I suppose, um, the most popular and easiest survey in the 18th century. And um, it's used widely in colonial um, uh, kind of countries, partly because the technology tends to lag um, the further you go out from the centre. And the centre in terms of surveying, I think, um, in the 18th century is really in France. Um, so the compass and chain survey is a fairly basic method where, you, you know, you stretch out your chain and you're usually trying to draw a boundary in, a, in an area that hasn't been maybe surveyed or mapped before. So you're not maybe in colonial context looking for great accuracy. So the, the traditional ways of um, attaining accuracy in a survey involve triangulation. And so at the core of Europe at this point, and that, that's particularly in, in the French Empire, triangulation was being used to take kind of great check that, to make sure that the angular, particularly the angular measurements that you took with the compass um, and the lengths that then went out from those, if, if they're not very accurate, then particularly in a parallelogram that the, you, you know that it, it will be off it will, you know, so that it won't be correct. And if you make the triangulation, if you use triangle, triangles and um, the kind of geometry that would check the survey for you, then it would be much more accurate. The other great problem in the 18th century for surveying was that magnetic north um, and 
compasses um, obviously use magnetic north. Um, magnetic north um, varies over time and it moves. So if you just think about, um, you know, when you draw or when you set out a survey, and, and these are property lines, you know, so they're very legal lines as to who owns what. Um, if the north point is varying or if, you know, the magnetic north has moved, then all those lines are slightly off. And you can imagine the kind of legal minefield um, that that creates. But again, in colonial context, like in, you know, parts of the States, parts of the Caribbean, Ireland in the kind of 17th century in particular, um, you, you know that you don't require great accuracy in survey methods. And that then translates so that the Car- French Caribbean islands um, are surveyed really at much greater detail at a, at a large scale earlier. And, the, and that then in very much depending on the scale of drawing you want to do and the kind of scale of design you want to do, the, the more accurate the survey and the larger it is, that facilitates certain types of design. It facilitates larger scale designs um, and more axial ones, usually because, because you can set up the geometries more accurately. Mm, fascinating. That gives us a really great understanding of sort of how and why things develop the way that they do. And on this point of kind of it impacts what sorts of buildings are made and how things are designed, um, would you mind please comparing for us sort of the American plantation and how that's designed and what that looks like, um, all sorts of factors involved, right? Mass um, use of enslaved labor, uh, legal intel policies, and then very different, but also quite impactful legal and political reforms in Ireland. How can we sort of compare these things and see the impact on the spatial forms of landscapes and constructions? Um, well, I'll just take you back a bit to the landscape garden, um, which is kind of where I started out, which which is very much uh, um, a kind of concept which attaches to the gen- gentleman's park in England, which is the kind of core of your estate where you spend most of your, more money than elsewhere. But it's also the part of your estate that you're farming yourself and you're, that you're not tenanting out. Um, So most parts of England and Ireland have this kind of land holding structure or Ireland changed it in the 20th century. But generally speaking, they were great estates. And at the centre of them was this kind of core in Ireland called the domain in England, generally called the gentleman's park. Um, And then, you know, you get this contrast between tenanted land, which is clearly, you know, owned still frequently owned by tenanted farmers and they have a different way of using the land than somebody who's designing their domain and so capability brown really took that aesthetic to its kind of full completion where, where you where you have these wonderful boundary tree belts and you have these curvilinear roots through a highly designed landscape that's made to look natural but it's really anything but natural um, and then so in England the, I think this works very well um, obviously and there isn't too much of a contrast between being inside the gentleman's park and being outside or, or you know between the two types of landscape um, when you translate that form and it's a very large scale form so a domain can typically be you know around 600 acres and then the estate might be in the order of maybe 6,000 acres you know acres depending on this on how significant the person is usually and it is very much a scalar kind of or nested it's very nested so so the royal family will have the largest estates 
then the senior aristocrats, and then all the way down the kind of hierarchy of um, aristocracy, and then into the gentry, and then down to the kind of more middling sorts. And generally in the British Isles, this um, hierarchy and structure is, is observed and is visible in the landscape, even, even if we've lost parts of it, like in Ireland. Um, now, in Ireland, that translation, when you took the gentleman's park and the surrounding estate into the Irish context, sometimes you've that that wall, the boundary wall, the domain wall becomes more of a shutting out of what's going on beyond the domain wall um, than something which supports it in a kind of tradition of benevolence that the, that the aristocracy and the community are all bound together, improving everything together and everyone is getting richer and better and happier. That's by extension. That doesn't actually work so well in Ireland because it's frequently evident that the domain is too different from the surrounding tenanted countryside, which as you move through the 18th century and in 1740s, say in Ireland, you have kind of famine conditions outside the domain. So some of those long distance views um, that might work so well in the home countries don't work so well when translated into Ireland and the further west you go the harsher the contrast becomes and also the more amoral or immoral it becomes because because of the degree of difference between the wealth within the domain and the poverty outside the domain um, so that's one translation I've always been fascinated with but it was when I went to the States and started looking at, at um, landed what I thought were landed estates in a similar way um, to Britain and Ireland um, and then but couldn't read them and the structure there was something very different about the structure um, and I think of course what's different about the structure of the landed estate um, which is frequently called the plantation um, in obviously in the American South, particularly Virginia, moving down through the Carolinas into Georgia, is that um, it doesn't, first of all, you don't have tenants um, to the same extent. You might have a few, um, but but the, the form, mostly people owned groups of plantations and most of them were surveyors. Somebody like George Washington is a surveyor. He's also buying a lot more land than you could in Europe um, and and head rights and this this concept of um, entail and legal holding of people that are attached to the land becomes very um, tragic in a way when you move it um, to the United States. Once you start entailing people with the land, um, then then the kind of slave plantation is really encouraged in this environment, and um, because you can only buy land um, it's proportional to to the head rights that you have to buy it somewhere like Virginia so the more slaves you have the more land you can buy um, and so the expansion of an estate in Virginia in the early years goes hand in hand with the more people that you have to farm it initially you might have had indentured servants of course but but eventually it moves very strongly towards enslaved people and then the larger your estate um, and you may not, of course, be farming your whole estate. Some like someone like George Washington has twenty thousand acres. He's he's not farming all of them. You're also you're also speculating in land, particularly along the frontier. So you might be 
buying pieces of land that you really aren't going to farm. You might just hold them and then sell them on. So so a typical kind of speculation in land. But what happens with the plantation in the States, and which took me a long time to, to read um, really when I was there, is that you people owned groups of land, which were kind of individual plantations, which might be beside each other or might not. Um, generally speaking, then you'd live on one of them, which might be the principal plantation. But it's slightly different from the Caribbean because there would be a kind of central integrated plantation that would be the, the se- very much the senior one. Um, so again, looking at Mount Vernon, which is a case study in the book, there were there were five plantation kind of farms and they each have their own nucleus. One of them is the mansion house which is Mount Vernon. Um, but and, and again, that's where the real difference starts to occur but between the kind of European landed estate and the American um, landed estate is that the, the domain portion is, is not um, kind of aestheticized relative to the surrounding tenanted land. Um, it's really becomes uh, it becomes one element in, in Mount Vernon within five. And also what becomes very interesting, I think, in its design is that you clearly don't want people to see certain parts of your land holding, um, particularly if you're the president. Um, but that gives it a, a much smaller character because unlike England, where you can have views in all directions and you can have approach routes from all, you know, angles and you can set up views wherever you like really you might avoid you know the kitchen garden you might avoid the more productive areas but but you're not avoiding views the way that happens in an american plantation because by the end of the 18th century of course people are deeply aware that that there are there's very ser- serious problems attached to um kind of slavery as a system of uh either of of you know of society, but also as a way of organizing landscape. So, so they're they're very. Um, someone like Washington in his letters is very aware that he needs to move to an English system. He wants to get out of this American system, um, and he tries to set it up with tenants. He tries to kind of make an English estate out of it, but he can't really because his the economic basis of his wealth is so tied to plantation to the plantation economy and to the fact that he needs four of those plantations to continue being tobacco plantations because otherwise he really won't have any money. Um, So that starts to give the American plantation a very different kind of structure, a very different um, impact on the landscape. And, and it, I mean, I think it has been tiptoed about um, pretty a lot in garden history. Um, You know, why is the landscape garden not the same um or you know often in america you say they're very small they're very productive gardens um but at the same time that they're, they're really trying not to look in certain directions and i found that very fascinating because the vision is so controlled within a, a landscape garden within landscape design where where you look what what um you know how you're encouraged to look towards certain compositions and if you can't do those in certain directions and um, then it makes for a very different kind of landscape mm, very much so thank you for taking us through that comparison i think a lot of people are going to be looking at landscapes differently um having heard that 
Before we um, think further about what impact the plantation has on design, I'd love to pick up on something you mentioned earlier in that answer, um, the word improve, right, improved. Uh, That really has a lot of meaning in this time period. So can you tell us what it meant for a landscape to be improved? And perhaps similarly, in a similar vein as the previous question, to what extent was this concept um, the same or different between Ireland and America? Um, yes, it's really an ideology, a kind of system of belief, I think, in um, in the 18th century that, you know, that the human condition is constantly being improved and, and everything that touches the human condition can also be improved. So agriculture can be improved, people can be improved, politics can be improved. Um, and and by extension, if you improve one part, there's an implicit belief that that every, that everything else will you know it will be a cumulative process. So improvement of the agri- of the soil will lead to an improvement in planting, will lead to improvement in economic returns, and um, will lead to an improvement in the kind of life you can live in that landscape because it's more productive. You're making more money. Everything is is getting better and moving towards a um, you know a, a better kind of environment for everybody. And in a way, I think this philosophy worked relatively well, close to the centres of say imperial power. But it's also a very slippery concept when you translate it into a colonial environment, you know, where there's a great disparity of power involved. I think, um, so when you say that you're improving. Um, the lot of your people um, or you're improving your plantation, that may require you to actually work some people very hard, even though, and, and, and that's clearly not improving their quality of life, even though eventually and economically it might be improving your quality of life. Um, so, and it's, it's framed also in colonial contexts where, where there are two languages at play, say, for example, in Ireland, where, where you have a native Gaelic culture and you have other traditions of farming, you've other traditions of reading landscape, of making settlements, of living in the environment. Then if you if you are, uh, have a kind of colonists um, or or people who adopt a kind of improving ideology are also trying to change all those people to make them in to make them in their image so for so you don't want the landscape to look gaelic and unimproved and have lazy beds and lots of potatoes and not have proper tree plantations of you know ideally apples and um, that is not improved from the from the english perspective and and we are frequently Improvement is couched very much from the English perspective and things are improved if they become more like England. So, again, the more different the landscape is from England, the harder it is to convert in a way to to looking and behaving like England. Um, And the same applies, of course, to people Um, improving people. Is, is a very dodgy concept, really, because what you're really doing is trying to change them to be just like you. And what did that look like in the American context? Um, well, I think they did, you know, it is someone like Jefferson is in, in Monticello is trying to improve um, that hill and he's trying to improve the, the, the number of plants he grows there. He's trying to improve its architecture. You know, he's designing his own building um, and he's creating a very, um, in many, from many 
points of view, a very beautiful and um, noteworthy establishment. You know, so he's translating a lot of the, particularly Italian ideas, actually, to Monticello compared to, say, um, Mount Vernon. Um, so, so you know, it is a very beautiful setting. But but what happens in um, in Monticello is that the wings of the house, and it's a, a very much a Palladian model in Monticello. It is, of course, literally sitting on the enslaved quarters. You know, and you can walk along on top. Um, and th- this is another thing that fascinated me about the country house in the in the states. Because, of course, you have so many enslaved people and you are feeding them all. So so you're not paying them. And it took me a while. These are kind of basic points. But it took me a while to realize. Of, of, so, of course, you need massive kitchens because nobody can go home and do their own cooking. And nobody can, you know. So it's not just the, the house servants that you have to feed like in an English or Irish country house you have very large groups of people that that need to be fed so the country house kind of splinters into lots of smaller buildings that are arranged in a very hierarchical way around them you're also trying to be extremely self-sufficient because you have a lot of labor so you have the the possibility of having a forge you can make your own, all your own nails you can make you know so so you can really become a very self-sufficient ideal kind of um community in in self-sufficiency terms but of course that is all built on a complete and total absence of freedom for so many hundreds of people um and and that is striking when you visit a plantation I think once you figure out how how it works and where people are probably going every day and that, you know, that a large proportion of the agricultural workers, as in Britain and Ireland, are not going to the back to their, you know, to the village or back to their own homes and that they're actually staying on site and they have to be fed on site. The hospital have to have to be on site. They have to be medicalized on site. The children are all born on on site and, you know, and. So, so it's it's an entire instead of a town. James Ackerman actually, um, in his book The Villa, you know, is very good at the kind of origin of the word the village, the, the villa, which comes from village. But then the villa in the United States, which becomes the plantation, you know, it actually displaces the functions of a town. So in the in the southern United States, you get kind of very undeveloped towns because because they literally have no people because all the people. You know, and then somewhere like Georgia, you know, eighty percent are enslaved people around this period. Eighty percent of the population, and um, so they're all living on the plantation, and they all have to be controlled and fed and everything. They can't; they're not in a town, and and they've no freedom to go to a town. They can't shop; they're not allowed to shop. They they have no money. You know, they're they're outside that economic system. They're not being paid, obviously. So, um, so this this makes for a totally kind of different structure. And um, and that's that's partly what the book is about. I think it's it's trying to read and understand those structures in the landscape and the knock on effect that has on on lots of other things down to you know fences and boundaries and gates and how people are how you go in how you go out all these kind of elementary things which we take for granted. Do you mind if I ask you to tell us a bit more about that last point, about the gates and the going in and out um, and the sort of entrances to estates and how that's different um, between the two places because of these things about um, fewer towns because the labour is enslaved? Um, 
Yeah, well, again, because these a lot of these environments, one one thing that struck me is that there are parts of the west of Ireland, you know, where it's very clear that the roads went in last because access was very much from the sea. Um, so all the great houses are built, say, in, in a shown peninsula looking down to, to Loch Foyle, you know, so that, so that anything you produce on your landscape is going to be shipped. And the same happens somewhere like Virginia, you know, or all those wonderful rivers, the James, the Rappahannock, there's a whole stream of them. And all along those rivers, you have kind of upstream, all the way upstream are the plantations. And everyone is growing tobacco and then rolling it down so that it can be loaded on the riverside. And as a consequence, the roads and the other parts of kind of infrastructure that you would look to are are much later to develop. And this strikes Europeans a lot when they go to the States, that they can't find things clearly um, and that, that they're always wandering around in the woods in the dark. And I think that's unlike the British Isles at this point, where we have kind of strip maps, you know, like Taylor and Skinner do all these little diagrams of the road diagrams, you know, and this house is the most important house and then this house and then this house. And all the roads are, are it's very legible as you go down any kind of 18th century road, the great, the gates and the lodges will tell you who the most important person is. You know, do, do I go in that entrance or if I'm, you know, if I'm a servant or if I'm poor, I probably don't go in that gate. I go round and I go in one of the side gates. And, there, and, and a great estate in Britain and Ireland typically would have three or four gated entrances with lodges. So that is kind of missing um, from the American estate because typically the the principal entrance was from the river, first of all, where you might have a key and, um, you know, and somewhere to load the the bales of whatever you were producing might be tobacco, might be cotton. Um, So that was the principal kind of entrance, but it's also a private entrance. So you aren't really addressing the public road in the way that you would be trying to create an impression in both Britain and Ireland, in terms of the gates and the lodges. There is a, a book, a good book, Trumpet at a Distant Gate. You know, you're trumpeting the house re- really from the gate. And anyone who knows their Jane Austen novels knows that the uh, the principal approach route from the main gate is the most contrived, usually the longest, the most, by the mid 18th century, the most curvilinear. There'll be lots of clumps framing the house. You'll have lots of vistas that are very carefully positioned and designed to entertain you almost as you approach the house. But there, it, but an English or Irish country has invariably has more than one entrance. And that fascinated me about the American state was the extent to which you were corralled into one approach. Um, and I'm really talking about um, for, you know, wealthy um, white people. Of course, the enslaved people had lots of other ways of using the landscape, lots of their own routes, their own entrances. Um, but So I'm talking about the European aestheticization of their way of moving through the landscape, um, which as a European was, was most familiar to me and easiest to read. But what struck me was that there was really only one way um, to to formally enter Mount Vernon, um, and that that it was extremely controlled. But again, that comes back to the structure of the plantation because you can't really go through muddy hole farm, or you know the dogs run farm. You can't go through the other parts of the plantation, which is where the, most of the enslaved labour are, are living, and where there are lots and lots of tobacco fields. Tobacco is not very picturesque. It's not very elegant. It can't be accommodated really into a capability brown landscape. 
So if four fifths of your plantation is tobacco, then you really can only come through the the one fifth where where you can afford to grow grass and where you can do a proper tree lined approach. Hmm. So one thing that's come up quite a few times is this idea of kind of travel, right? That you're saying, well, I come from this tradition, I go here and it looks different, right? And I had to learn to read it, which as you discuss in the book is something that was true of a lot of European visitors to America of this kind of, wait a second, I'm wandering around, what's happening? And so I'd love to bring that into conversation with one of the words in your title of revolution, right? You obviously traveled to different places in order to understand these different pieces, At the time, a lot of these people were traveling back and forth and thinking about these differences. How can we understand this sort of idea of comparative travel in terms of revolutionary thought? Because certainly for some of these people, it seems like it was the fact of traveling and seeing different places do different things seemed to be really important for developing revolutionary ideas. How do these things relate? Um, Well, one of the key people in the book is is Arthur Young, and he says um, that that it's only by comparing things that we start to analyse really um, how we want to change them. Um, It's very hard to, if you've nothing to kind of place something against, it's very hard to to argue that it needs to be changed. Um, So he certainly sets up comparison or comparative travel as a key way of understanding the world and also formulating ways in which to change it. Um, and I suppose revolutionaries are, are trying to change the world. You know, they, they want it to be different. So, again, travel becomes a way of arguing for changing things. So, so you compare the current condition of, of wherever you are with somewhere that's better or, or worse, depending on how you want to frame the argument um, and, and say, you know, this, this is worse than here. We need we need to be doing things like this because they have managed to do it that way. So a lot of revolution, and I do, you know, revolution in this period is is really um, an elite occupation. You know, to to have the leisure to think and to, um, you know, to read and to um, have intellectual um, ambitions. It's you have to be a member of the elite. You have to be a member of the educated. So so it's. It's also wealthy people, really, who are able to travel and who can compare other countries' experiences of things. So so in writing the book, I tried particularly um, to look at Irishmen and Americans. But again, it also was very important to look at Jean-Jacques Rousseau, whose um, books established ways of traveling and ways of looking at the world that I think were so extraordinarily influential, particularly on the revolutionaries, um, because of, of, of his ambition to, to consider every human being um, as an, and every human experience as, as a separate, equally valuable um, kind of concept. So for then those who had traveled and had thought about what they wanted to change, um, coming back home, thinking about it, what would, for example, an ideal Irish revolutionary villa or estate look like? Yeah, well, I mean, all of these men, well, there's two men really in particular. One is um, Edward Fitzgerald, who became a United Irishman, but was also the son of the Duke of Leinster. So he very much betrayed his background in adopting the ideals, particularly of the of the French Revolution, 
but he had traveled as a British officer um, to Canada um, had fought, you know, in in the United States during the Revolutionary Period. Traveled through the Caribbean, extremely well traveled individual. Came up through Spain, um, you know, was familiar with Italy. So th- these are very well traveled revolutionaries. Um, and then so when he came back to Ireland after that experience, particularly in France, you know, so the great French tenets of liberty, equality, fraternity, um, he wanted a more equal landscape. You know, he did not, he had um, given up his title or renounced it publicly in Paris. He was a citizen, which um, very much meant that that he was to try and live on an equal footing with everyone else. And that becomes spatial then. You cannot live in a much, much bigger house than everyone else if you believe in liberty, equality and fraternity in this period. Um, so he had to move to a smaller house. He had to do all his own gardening. Um, you know, you, you also have to experience, you have to try and teach yourself. And this is Rousseauian in a way that that you, you need that contact with the soil itself, with the experience of work yourself. You, you cannot employ someone to do it for you. So he designs this um, or lives in this kind of Kildare Lodge. And it's very performative, actually, the way in which he and his wife, who was the soi-disant kind of daughter of, of the, the Duke d'Orléans, they kind of perform their gardening and they perform go, going for walks. You have to also walk. There's no way you can, you know, be carried in a carriage because that's implicitly hierarchical and somebody or or you know you're setting yourself apart from the rest of the people and so you have to walk and you have to garden yourself and and in a way you have to demonstrate how revolutionary you are constantly in the way in which you live how how you think and how you live are the same and and that comes I think directly from Rousseau um, that that you you enact a way of living in the world that that is revolutionary, really, for this period. And obviously, we've referred to some successful revolutions, right? The French Revolution. I mean, obviously, we can contest what success means, but we certainly can't argue that something massive changed the political order in France, in America, in Ireland. As we've talked about, there were attempts. And yet, if we're looking in this period, um, there wasn't a successful Irish revolution similarly to the other two, which means we can think about in the context of Ireland, counter-revolutionary landscapes. What do those look like? I think, again, I I haven't mentioned this, but it was very fascinating to me to think also about demographics in this period. So the population of Ireland, despite its, you know, very small size compared to the United States in 1800 is essentially kind of the same. It's around 5 million. Um, So, and, and that kind of balance between England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland, you know, is, is not the balance that certainly the demographic balance that pertains today, you know, there it's a lot closer and, um, so I think it's kind of t- it, it eventually evolved by kind of 1840 um, to a kind of um, I think it's 22 million in England and around eight in Ireland. So so it's much that these are of a piece. So it's not it's not entirely ridiculous to compare Ireland and the United States or Ireland um, and France or these kind of ambitions. Um, the, the reason why I'm saying that is that it's it isn't entirely it wasn't entirely um, kind of a, a 
con- conclusive that that Ireland's revolutions or rebellions might fail. They were dangerous at the time to to the British Empire, to the British state, um, because partly because of that demographic being much much closer. And then also because, of course, these were very seditious revolutionaries and they were trying to ally with France and they were trying to have an invasion through the Western coast to make to liberate Ireland from the United Kingdom. Um, but the United Kingdom had not quite yet been formed in 1798. And in a way, the Act of Union really was the result of a, a failed rebellion, um, in a failed United Irishmen's rebellion in Ireland. Um, so counter-revolution is a policy that is, of course, adopted um, by states when, when a large section of them has decided not to follow the kind of main guard or the, the main trajectory. Um, it usually involves a lot of repression and a lot of troop action um, and a lot of violence. A lot of people were killed um, and uh, there was a great clampdown, obviously, in the immediate aftermath of the rebellion. Um, but what I was tracking was not so much the military clampdown or the loss of life, actually, or the battles that took place or how all that occurred, but how it also became necessary to reframe and reconsider kind of rebel landscapes in Ireland um, after 1800, particularly those of Wicklow, because Dublin is is um, unusually blessed in a way in that we have a very large mountainous region immediately to the south. Um, and this was, of course, used um, by revolutionaries because you could hide out there, you could um, conceal yourself from the centre of Dublin, um, and it was always... Um, of course, 18th century aesthetics um, grew to love the mountains, grew to love freedom, grew to love the individual experiencing nature in the mountains. So that becomes very much attached or part of a kind of revolutionary ideology that you escape into the wild um, and that you live with nature. And this happened literally in Dublin up in, up in Wicklow. Now, one of the first things the army does, of course, is to drive a military road through Wicklow to stop the banditti, or they sometimes use strange Italian word of, of bandits, to, to make sure that they that the army can get there quickly and that they build a whole series of barracks all the way along um, the military road to, to intervene and to make to tame that landscape, just as happened in the Highlands of Scotland um, in the early 18th century. So they're following a very standard procedure um, within the British Empire, which is, you know, to build a road to get an army in. Is, is really fundamental to counter-revolution in a physical sense. But what's also interesting is, is the way in which images and paintings were used to change people, to kind of reappropriate that landscape away from the rebel cause and back to a kind of tame picturesque so that it's not a wild Irish revolutionary landscape anymore, even though that fits the kind of romantic aesthetic much better. Um, but but what the um, Lord Lieutenant wants to do, um, and particularly this exhibition that was put on in Dublin um, of um, the, the, the views of Wicklow, is to kind of retake, reclaim those and say, yes, we can be soldiers and we can be Lord Lieutenants in these wild landscapes. Um, and that makes them in a way, English and British again, 
um, and it's not a rebel landscape anymore. Now, of course, that this didn't fully succeed, um, and you know, people like Michael Dwyer, um, the you know, fake generals, that the use of kind of fake general titles, um, General Holt, kind of appointing his guards. There's one title for one of the paintings, one of the more seditious ones, because the artists actually, it's not clear you know, which side they were on. And they, they would paint images um, of, say, a, of a cottage or, you know, which are not clearly imperial. They're, they're probably actually more Irish nationalist or more Irish, you know, um, United Irishmen perspective. But they were still hung together in an exhibition and the whole of the, the two Dublin or the Tong all came and looked at these images, some of which were probably slightly seditious and some of which were not. But because the picturesque is kind of a slippery concept and uh, a burning cottage can be picturesque and revolutionary um, and the Lord Lieutenant feasibly could be on top of a waterfall directing laborers who who might then be made more picturesque it it it's a very interesting kind of melding of different languages um with with officially a counter-revolutionary intent but you can see just how easily it collapses and becomes actually pro-revolutionary again because the romantic idiom really mer- works much better for the rebel than for you know a, a polite tea party mm. Absolutely fascinating to see, as you said, that melding. For my penultimate question, I'd love to ask you uh, one further sort of comparison between Ireland and America. Um, We haven't really touched on it, and I sort of want to bring it to the fore. We've kind of been talking about a lot of these estates as the person who owns it and designs it, etc., also lives there, right? George Washington or Monticello or in Ireland. But in fact, we know that um, quite a lot of these owners of these massive estates were absentee, did not actually live there. Um, As you mentioned, George Washington kind of owns more land than he could possibly use. A lot of it was speculation. How did the fact of landlords being absentee from these estates impact the design of the landscapes? Um, And kind of would you mind comparing that in America and Ireland? Um, yeah, well, I've always been, absenteeism was always a kind of key stick, I suppose, with which to beat um, the poor British in Ireland, um, you know, that if you were absentee, that's why everything was going wrong. Um, and and sometimes that was the case, but it wasn't always the case. But But I was interested in tracing design consequences of absenteeism, because what happens is when someone is absentee, you get a whole stream of drawings and letters that has to cross in, in either the Irish Sea um, or sometimes to the Caribbean, um, you know, where people are sending directions. And because they're at home and they can't actually see it, they may never have visited it, then you get a lot more drawings and you get a lot more plans and people write letters where they explain their motives, which, which is what I really love, actually, is somebody explaining their design in writing. And um, that rarely happens if somebody's on site. Um, in Ireland, so in Ireland, in the Fitzwilliam estate in Dublin, um, they lived in Richmond on Thames, and and stri- you get these strange disjunctions because a design will be set out, then a drawing will go to London, it won't be properly interpreted, a direction will come back, and and so they're they're kind of strange junctions because someone hasn't fully understood that that axis should actually line up with that road, you know, that tree avenue is supposed to line up with that 
road there. Um, and, you know, it doesn't work unless they line up. So, the, so there are errors that are deeply suspicious. Um, and I think those kind of errors are characteristic of absentee design. But there's all, also another great advantage to absenteeism, um, which is that if you're absentee, of course, what, what you can't see is out of sight and therefore out of mind. And what really happens in the um, American and Caribbean plantation is that absenteeism um, in kind of it, it, it's very insidious because because you, what happened, what's going on in your plantation, you can't see it. So so you can you distance yourself from it and it becomes kind of abstract and far away. And you have maybe an agent who's doing everything on the ground and he writes to you and you write back to him. And um, but in a way, you're, you're so far away, you don't know what's going on. Um, you you do, well you do know some of what's going on but you can almost blank it out and you can disassociate yourself from it so one of the key people in this book is um Pierce Butler who was an Irishman from Carlo where he grew up on a kind of classic Irish domain but he was the second son so he went into the army and um, went to the states married Mary Middleton in Georgia um, and became involved in buying up plantations and developing them. And of course, um, he, his wife inherited a lot of slaves, which he illegally moved across the state boundary, actually, to Georgia. But he started developing his own plantations. Um, where he became one of the most successful planters in Georgia. He became the first senator of Georgia. And, and by the time he was finished, he you know he was operating plantations with between six and seven hundred slaves on them, um, so I was fascinated in tracing this man um, who who took what he knew of the Irish landscape and how it works and how absenteeism works here, um, and how improvement works here, particularly drainage and uh, um, soil and manuring. He's always fascinated with manuring. And then he goes, bounces around down the United States, basically ends up in Georgia, but pref- much prefers to live in Philadelphia. And by the when he, when he has enough money, he leaves Georgia, goes to Philadelphia and directs everything by letter to Roswell King, who's his agent. Um, and um, it's really the most, I mean, some of the letters are really awful. I mean, the, the level of exploitation of people's lives um, the the sheer um, tragedies that, that resulted um, from the system of enslavement that, that made his plantation some of the most successful cotton plantations um, in the South in, uh, in that early 19th century period. So Pierce Butler, Cotton, Long Island. Um, he, these are on the Sea Islands of Georgia. It was called, um, the, it was known in Liverpool, it was renowned um, for the quality of the cotton, but it was built in, in these kind of highly well-drained, um, you know, he took the Irish technology, transferred it to, to Georgia, knew how to drain land and then develop it and to grow cotton on it. So you've got a highly um, uh, uh, kind of organized and um, technologically um, in innovative landscape, growing this extraordinary um, cotton. Um, but the, the cost in human lives um, and human experiences um, is pretty shocking. And so, so I would, that, and absenteeism essentially facilitates that because 
first of all, we get the record through the letters of how people thought and how aware they actually were. Because Pierce Butler is, is a total contradiction because he's a United. He says he's a United Irishman. He writes all these letters to home and to his cousin in London about how much he loves freedom and how he hates slavery and you know how how he only keeps slaves because you know there's really no alternative for him. Um, but at the same time, he's turning this totally different face to to Roswell King in Georgia and, and trying to get as much money out of out of the labour as he can. Um, and Roswell King, of course, is, is equally horrible in many other ways. Um, and he is on that. In a way, Roswell King is, is, is on the ground. He's the guy who, you know, has to do the whipping or has to, in, in, you know, the extraordinary level of level of violence on those um, plantations. But but because Pierce Butler has absented, absented himself, um, he in a way thinks that he's not complicit in it. And that, that's the big lie of, of, you know, European colonialism is that just because we're far away doesn't mean that we're not involved. Um, and so he was a great case study in terms of his landscapes of um, uh, Butler's Island in Georgia and then Philadelphia where he had this suburban mansion um, and then of course the, the transatlantic back to Carlo and back to London where he's writing other letters um, he exposed for me anyway the, this kind of manipulative mindset um, of a European colonist who ha- who happens to be Irish first and then American um, bounces between all these identities uses whichever one suits at whatever time um, and um, then manipulates everything in terms of imp- he's improving himself and his financial situation um, and doesn't ever see the contradiction in, in what he's doing. Or if he, if he does, it, it's in some passages, I think, which, which it clearly demonstrate how torn he is, particularly to his children, um, between these different identities and these different kind of landscapes, which he's attached to. What a fascinating um, character to tell us about. And of course, there's even more details in the book. Um, I think we've covered a huge amount of ground and really showed how looking at landscape design can talk about all of these big picture topics. So that leaves me only with my final question, which is now that this book is done, people can read it, it's off your desk. Is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like our listeners to be aware of? Um, Well, I I think I'm actually going to come back to Ireland for a while and um, look at Connemara. Um, I've always avoided Connemara because I think it's where the famine is most um, felt in the landscape um, but I've again I have a few case studies I'm also very interested I was brought up um, and went to school in the Irish language so I'm very interested in, in bilingual landscapes and how the language in which you read a landscape um, you know biases you in certain directions brings out certain things um, makes you kind of analyze it slightly differently. Um, and so I'm going to look at that in Connemara, where, where I have a long-standing case study on Patrick Pierce. Um, and he had warring kind of slideshows with the Lord Lieutenant, who strangely had his summer house beside him in Rossmuck. So I think I'm going to I, I'm going to go west, but not not very far. 
um, and go to Connemara, where where the famine is is going to hit. You have that shadow coming, um, but I think it's a, it's a great landscape to work on. So that's where I'm going to go next. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Best of luck with that research project. Um, but while you're doing it, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, again, titled Landscape Design and Revolution in Ireland and the United States, published by Yale University Press. Finola, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. Thank you, Miranda. I enjoyed it.